I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. I'm Jack Caprow, filling in for Andrew Schwartz. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we're joined again by Brenda Smith, the Executive Assistant Commissioner in the Office of Trade at U.S. Customs and Border Protection, to discuss an important issue, how the United States investigates and prevents imports of products made with forced labor. Brenda and The Trade Guys break down CBP's recent successes in combating forced labor, how CBP carries out investigations, and challenges that they face. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Well, welcome back to a fresh new year of the Trade Guys. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. I hope you all had a healthy and safe holiday season. We're lucky and honored and thrilled to be joined today by Brenda Smith, who's back again. She's the Executive Assistant Commissioner of the Office of Trade at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. We had Brenda back on the show last year for an excellent episode, and she's joining us for a really timely conversation about her office and CBP's role in enforcement as it relates to forced labor and how we make sure that products made with forced labor aren't finding their way into the hands of U.S. consumers. And I just want to start with a with a pretty big picture question, Brenda, that I think will help put the issue in context for a lot of our listeners. You know, what is the scope and scale of, of products made with forced labor that come into the United States? Because I think a lot of folks maybe don't understand, you know, how much forced labor is still out there and the scale of products that are still being made with forced labor. So can you kind of put it all in context for us and help frame the discussion? Happy to. And it is a a much larger problem than we really think of when we go to the store and we buy things. Really, forced labor is modern slavery, not to put too fine a point on it. And it occurs on a global scale. The U.S. Department of Labor does a a great deal of research into this and, in fact, puts out a, a regular report on a list of goods produced with child labor or forced labor. And there's 155 products from 77 countries that they believe are made with forced labor. The International Labor Organization, which does a great job really of tracking um, the, the issue as well as providing standards around what a free and fair labor environment looks like, estimates that over 25 million people around the world are working under conditions of forced labor. So when we talk about forced labor, what we're really referring to are things where people are under threat of physical and sexual violence, where their movement is restricted. For example, their passports are held so they can't travel. Or in fact, just to support daily living, they have to go into such debt that they they really can't leave their place of employment. Brenda, just a quick question about the, you know, how this has changed over time, because the provisions in U.S. law excluding items made from forced labor are about 90 years old. It goes back to Smoot-Hawley and the Trade Act of 1930. So, and there are older provisions than that. The McKinley Tariff Act had uh, provisions for excluding prison labor. 
So there have been labor provisions and trade agreements for a long time, but but things have changed a lot in the last 90 years. So how would you characterize that and what do we see today? So I think back in the 1930s, and, and good on you for knowing your customs history, we have had the authority uh, in the U.S. Customs Service for close to 100 years to exclude goods made wholly or in part with forced labor. And it's it's pretty simple. But at that point, what we saw was trying to ensure that U.S. business faced a level playing field. And so that American companies that were trying to produce goods weren't at an unfair advantage because their labor costs would be higher because they didn't use forced labor. Now it's both an economic issue as well as a human rights issue. And unfortunately, while we're seeing significant change in migration patterns, which are some of the most vulnerable practices and some of the most vulnerable workers moving through global labor chains, we really are seeing the same problem, modern slavery, in the current era. So can you explain a little bit what CBP's role is in combating forced labor? And I think what we're most interested in and I think what, you know, the most where the most vexing questions come up are how CBP determines what products are made with forced labor, how you do the investigation into, you know, labor practices that are used to create certain products that you would suspect are are being made with forced labor. So as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the customs authority in the U.S. is pretty unique. Around the world, we believe we are at this point the only administration that has the ability to exclude goods made with forced labor. And that was pretty groundbreaking back in the 1930s to recognize the power really of the purse to stop goods and send the message to uh, businesses around the world that this was not an acceptable practice. So how do we translate that into CBP's operational approach these days? We have an investigative process that starts by gathering information, not only from other U.S. government agencies, but from non-governmental organizations and think tanks that have done a great deal of research into working conditions. There's been some tremendous investigative reporting by folks that are on the ground and able to gather witness testimony, as well as some technology, groundbreaking technology that uses analytics and AI to make the connections, those supply chain connections, where we have an instance of, for example, cotton grown in a field in Xinjiang, making its way through a supply chain um, through various manufacturers, shippers, and then U.S. importers. And it's those connections that CBP needs to be able to make a case of forced labor and issue what's known as a withhold release order. Do you have people on the ground in these other countries? So we rely really on a network. In better days, we often will do those field visits ourselves. Right now, we have to rely on uh, non-governmental organizations that are reside in-country or have access to employees or individuals who can observe uh, instances on the ground. So in the case of China, how has that worked out? It seems to me the Chinese have tried very hard to prevent that kind of investigation from occurring. 
Yeah, our access is extraordinarily limited in China um, for these types of verification, as is our available information. And so, as you're probably aware, we have had access to a number of leaked documents that the press has made available. There are also a, a pretty vibrant civil society set of organizations that support the victims of forced labor and are in communication with the minority communities in Xinjiang that as information is made available or as individuals are able to escape, they are able to take testimony and make that testimony available to us. It seems like it's a long supply chain from cotton growing to finished apparel. And there's a lot of steps in, in the process, a lot of sort of fungible materials come in through the process. So how do you cope with the complexity of that as sort of almost plausible deniability due to the complexity? That's an ongoing challenge. We have significant concerns around the manufacturing processes. As you noted, when cotton is grown, it then very often will go through a, a ginning process or a number of processes where cotton, perhaps from a forced labor farm, is mixed in with cotton from a farm where good labor practices are used. It can be very hard to separate those. So we really take a two-pronged approach. The first is to use the requirement of the Customs Modernization Act, which is that U.S. companies must exercise what's known as reasonable care. And it's just like what it sounds like. Companies need to understand what their supply chains are and know the business entities involved. They must ask questions and they must, beyond a, a reasonable suspicion, know who they're doing business with. The second approach that we take is really a, a verification approach. And by using our audit capability, we are able to look at books and records and trace supply chains. And we're also able to marry that up with some innovative technology that we use with our laboratory and scientific services capabilities to identify origin. And we have some new technology that we're testing now specifically targeting Xinjiang cotton. Is it somehow unique? Is the molecule unique? Uh, the tracing fascinates me, but but a cotton ball goes through a lot of steps. We're talking about uh, combines and ginning and then making thread and thread being sewn into apparel. How do you get all the way back to the cotton ball? So, you know, science is an amazing thing. And um, what we have <laughs> learned over time is that you actually can pull out the DNA of a natural product. And so like cotton, you know, everything from the soil that it's grown in to the fertilizer that was put on to it, as I understand it, leaves a, a chemical footprint and we're able to pull that out. One of the things that we're helped with by the law is the law, as I mentioned earlier, says wholly or in part. So if you have a, a bale of cotton and you can identify just a part of that bale as coming from Xinjiang, then that would be subject to the withhold release order. Do you proactively reach out to American companies that are, that are buying this stuff and tell them which companies are okay in your judgment? So we're not there yet because a lot of times our, our information is sort of based on reasonable suspicion. And I, I want to be sure that, that I have all of my information solid. But what I can do, and I think the government has done over the last six to nine months, 
is to provide as much information as is available to me. You're probably aware of the business advisory that went out on Xinjiang with a great deal of information about the risks that existed. Um, and it was specifically targeted at the U.S. business community. We also try to make available information that is helpful from the non-governmental community. We also provide outreach on what the law requires so that people are really clear about the legal requirements. We do a lot of training and really try to support a U.S. importing community to be sure they understand what the responsibilities are and have the information as much as possible that we can share. I wanted to ask what the trade community's responsibility in your view is in addressing the issue, right? I mean, the responsibility can't just be on CBP to to basically tell folks which companies to avoid. How's that partnership been and how is that how has it evolved in the in the last year or so more attention being paid to the issue? So we have a very strong relationship with the private sector, with the trade community, because they rely on us for for information and we rely on them for compliance. You know, reasonable care is a, a main principle that the importing community is very familiar with. But our job on the other side is to provide that information. And I think the U.S. government does a pretty good job through things like the forced labor and child labor report published by the Department of Labor. The State Department also provides their trafficking in persons report, which has really good information on where the risks are. Department of Labor's comply chain app, which also kind of pulls it all together and gives information about the risk levels. So if you're doing business in a particular country on a particular product, it's it's kind of hard to say you don't know. But I think we have a responsibility to continue to understand supply chains. And so our work with our federal advisory committee, the COAC, is really important in ensuring that we do as much as we can to provide that information in a way that is digestible and accessible to the private sector. Well, just there was a recent change thanks to uh, the USMCA, or as we lovingly call it, call it on this program, USMACA, <laughs> to uh, to basically extend the U.S. law provisions to Mexico and Canada it requires that the Mexico and Canada also take action to pro- prohibit forced labor. Can you talk about how, how that's working out and what kinds of challenges you've run into there? So one of the things that we saw in the wake of the 2016 CBP authorization, the Trade Facilitation and Trade Enforcement Act, was that there was a lot that we didn't know about forced labor. And so our education and then our operational approach had to develop over a couple of years. What we're working to do with our Canadian and Mexican customs colleagues is to try to move that process ahead more quickly by sharing our best practices, by sharing the information and the sources that we have, and by trying to show our lessons learned, what's worked and what hasn't worked so much, so that they are able to um, actually move towards a statutory prohibition on imports of forced labor, um, as required by the, the USMCA, but actually making it operationally effective and marrying that up with some of the communication that we've done throughout North America on forced labor issues. Now, custom services have different cultures as well as different legal operating entities and basis for action. Talk about what, what you've been able to do with both Mexico and Canada. And, and I want to make sure Canada is included in this because in a lot of cases, 
there is quite a difference in culture between Canada Customs and Customs and Border Protection in the United States. You're a law enforcement agency. Canada Customs, last I dealt with them, was basically a revenue agency uh, without much law enforcement authority. Both Canada and Mexican Customs are, are longtime partners of CBP and, and of U.S. government agencies. And we have a lot of personal relationships. And I think our passion for this issue has really caused a lot of our, our North American colleagues to, to pay attention and to get engaged with us. Uh, those longstanding relationships have helped us develop some pretty good information sharing mechanisms, as well as an openness to education and sharing of best practices that we're using in this environment. From a, an authority perspective, and I, you really put your finger on one of the continuing challenges is that a different set of authorities and skills that you know, 25 years ago was radically different. But I think in the last five years, as Canada has moved to a more unified border management model with some very progressive leadership at the Canadian Border Services Agency and, and Mexico really recognizing the value of a strong economy and being on the international stage with a lot of their trade agreements and production processes, really recognize the value to their business and their consumers of ensuring that their supply chains are also free of forced labor. Let me ask, you know, it seems like CBP, I don't know if paying more attention is the right word, but there's definitely a lot more activity when it comes to withhold release orders and preventing products made with forced labor from entering the United States. So the numbers that I'm looking at in FY17, there were no withhold release orders issued and in FY20, there were 14. What is responsible for the big uptick in the number of orders being issued? Is it technology? Is it better cooperation? Is it more operational experience? What explains it? So I think it's it's really three things, and, and you've touched on them, and we've talked about them in, in earlier portions of this conversation. The, the first thing really is education. We've learned a lot more and understand the environment and we understand where the risk is. The second thing really are the relationships. Having sources of information among the non-governmental community, having really engaged U.S. businesses that share what they're doing, like what good looks like so that we can use that as examples for others. And then I think finally is understanding what a good investigation looks like that is both legally sound and operationally efficient are really three things that we've learned to do over time. And with the result that in 2020, we had 13 withhold release orders, which more than doubled what we had seen in any prior year. We've invested pretty heavily in our skills and in the number of people that we've applied to to this challenge and are pretty proud that that people understand what their responsibilities are. Have any of those orders been challenged in court yet? No, surprisingly not. Um, not that I'm encouraging people to do that, but we go through a pretty extensive legal review to make sure that we meet the legal standard and that the actions that we take around the detentions under withhold release order or penalties or findings, which we're just starting to issue more of, are really legally sufficient and will hold up in court if they are challenged. 
Yeah, I wasn't intending to encourage it either. But these days when uh, everybody's suing everybody for everything, uh, it's really, I think it's a tribute to the thoroughness of your work that that hasn't happened. Can you also say a word about, we've talked a good bit about China and we've talked about Canada and Mexico. Are there other hotspots? Are there other places where this is a big problem that you're looking at? If you look at the Department of Labor and the State Department reports, you'll see risk of forced labor around the world. And part of our challenge is making sure that we highlight where the biggest risks are. For me, a lot of it comes down to the products themselves. We see a lot of forced labor and what I would call more basic industries, kind of first level manufacturing, but more, more in agricultural goods and aquaculture. We've done some very targeted withhold release orders on fishing vessels, which are, you know, out in the deep blue sea with very little supervision and very little opportunity for the individuals working on those fishing vessels that if their working conditions aren't good for them to appeal to a higher authority. So we've tried to to flag those as well. We've done a number of mined products out of Africa, as well as agricultural products, so tobacco from Malawi and others. And so I think that really focusing on agriculture and aquaculture is is something that we will continue to pay attention to. One question, and particularly as it applies to agriculture, is before 2015, U.S. law had an exclusion for what was called consumptive demand. If a product was not available elsewhere, that you could meet U.S. consumption. I actually remember this coming up in the, with the Sudan, in the early days of the Sudan Civil War, a product called gum Arabic, which was grown basically only in Sudan, and it was in everything from printer's ink to food products. And it, it was all over the place. And, and so I, I recall that provision being of interest but it's now been repealed. So how does that change your operation? One of the criteria that we used to go through when we received an allegation was, was it produced in the United States? And if the answer was no, then we essentially set that petition aside. And we don't do that anymore. I think in addition, the other big change that we saw when con the consumptive demand statute was changed was that we began to self-initiate. So the law provides for uh, private individuals or organizations to submit what are known as petitions to CBP, which allege the use of forced labor. We stopped waiting for those petitions because we were seeing two to three a year, maybe. And so starting in 2016, 2017, we started to identify the risk on our own and initiate investigations without waiting for the petition. So I think that the combination of those two factors really led to a, a pretty significant increase in, in activity. Do you still get petitions? We do. We do. Is there a difference in the success rate? of the petitions versus your self-initiated investigations? I think in some cases, the bigger factor is the cooperation between the initiating organization. So I would say that the most successful instances are where an organization understands what CBP needs. We need very specific information that links an environment of forced labor to a shipment that comes to the United States. 
um, with as much business information as we can get, that they understand those requirements and then are willing to share that information with CBP and then also are willing to amplify our messaging when we come up with a withhold release order and to the industries that it it should impact. So that's really the best of all possible worlds where we have a very motivated organization with good information and a willingness to to message. It makes for a successful conclusion. This is such an important issue and it seems like so much progress has been made in the past three years. So let me close by asking you this, Brenda, moving forward to make sure the good work continues, you know, what are the next steps for CBP? What does the agency need to do or the department need to do to make sure that progress continues to be made? What are the biggest challenges you're facing and and how do you see CBP overcoming them in the coming years? There are several ways that we can continue to get better. Again, I think first thing would be the relationships, right? Because that's where we get the information and that's where we get the collective effort. And a lot of those relationships have to be with U.S. consumers um, who take the time to understand what they're buying, where it comes from, and how it's produced, and hold companies that they purchase from accountable. So relationships would be the first thing. I think the second thing would be a better understanding of the relationship between the investments that we're able to make, in other words, the resources that we spend on this, and the the most effective way to get results, whether that is we just keep issuing withhold release orders, we ban products, which can be done by legislation, or whether it is putting together a package of aid and capacity building and high-level messaging to ensure that the factors that lead to forced labor are addressed in a a rational fashion. And then um, I think the third area is is just continuing to to work hard in a, a collaborative effort across the U.S. government to ensure that all of the resources of the U.S. government are married up with a, a good strategy and good business and consumer activity to really continue to mitigate the issue. If I could just put a plug in for the National Slavery and Human Trafficking Protection Month, which is this month of January, we'll all be wearing blue on January 11th, just to make sure that we are reminded that this issue goes on and it is um, it has a huge impact not only on trade, but on people's lives. So would really encourage people to take some time to educate themselves around this issue and continue to support holding ourselves accountable for free and fair labor environments. And another plug, CSIS actually has done a number amount of work in this area. Amy Lair, who uh, runs our Human Rights Project, has testified before Congress on Xinjiang issues, as I recall. And there's a body of work there. So listeners that are particularly interested in following up, go to the website and, and check out what Amy has posted. Yeah, this is certainly an area of increasing interest by elected officials and by the public. And it's uh, one of the areas where we've seen the trade policy evolve toward more more sensitivity to this, more attention to it, and more concern on the part of, of voters. You've talked about the cooperation you're getting from uh, NGOs and you know groups that are really concerned about this problem and what you're, you're hoping to get from consumers. What about the importing companies? Are they generally cooperative on this uh, or do you find resistance? 
I think what we've seen over the last 10 years is increasing awareness of the impact of corporate social responsibility and associated investment. And whether their motivations are, you know, out of the goodness of their heart, whether it's a brand management issue or whether it's a a risk management issue, many companies are investing in um, third-party audits, in ensuring that they have a, a code of ethics for their suppliers that includes requirements around social responsibility. And so I think that that we're getting good cooperation as companies see a greater return on that investment. I think you'll see more and more companies that are willing to really put their money where their mouth is in terms of, of doing good business. Good to hear. Great. Well, Brenda, thanks again for coming on, discussing such an important issue. And like Scott said, one that I think will only receive increased attention in in the coming years. It's been a really informative, uh, educational, great conversation. Thanks for coming. Really appreciate the opportunity. And it's wonderful to see you all again. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We don't usually have people on twice, but you're, uh, you have such important things to talk about. We're happy to do it. And you're welcome back again. Thanks very much. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.